going to be in the book of Job this morning. <clears throat> Job chapter 30, verses 19 through 23, and then chapter 31, verses 35 through 37. If you want to go ahead and mark those places in your Bibles, we'll be there shortly. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. So when I was an eighth grader, uh, I had a, a math teacher named Mr. Noy, K-N-O-Y. Mr. Noy was a good math teacher. Uh, I wasn't a huge fan of math, still not a huge fan of math. It was never my greatest subject. I enjoyed things like lunch better. Um, I also enjoyed English better than I did math, but it wasn't, it was never my favorite. I did okay in it, but I just never really enjoyed it. Uh, even though when I was in high school, I had a, uh, my aunt did it, did an excellent job, prepared us well for college, just never really ever liked math. And for that reason, maybe this is why this story even exists. I remember doing something. I don't remember exactly what it was. I would give you the details if I remembered, but I remember doing something to uh, draw the ire of Mr. Noy. I had disappointed him in some way, done something I shouldn't have done, and uh, our school gave licks, especially uh, even to junior high kids, and uh, it was time for me to get one because I had done something so grievously wrong, even though I can't remember what it was. It was toward the end of the class. Uh, he had given licks before, so this is not something that would be out of the ordinary for him. And I remember defending myself vehemently. Uh, I remember having a lot of good reasons. Again, I don't remember what they were, but I remember having a lot of good reasons as to why this shouldn't happen. Trying to make him laugh, trying to change the subject, doing all those sorts of things that you do when you're a student or when you're a child or when you're an adult that is in trouble. And I somehow, some way, was able to talk him out of it. I don't remember if we made a deal or uh, something else happened. Maybe we just ran out of time. Uh, or maybe he was just threatening just to see what I would do. I don't remember. But I remember as an eighth grader patting myself on the back for being able to defend myself so well that I was able to talk myself out of that form of punishment. We do that, don't we, with passion, defend ourselves, argue our case. Imagine an argument with a spouse. It's not that hard to do if you really try, in which you verbally compile a list of all of the reasons why you are right and the other person is wrong, of all of the reasons why you are more, are more valuable to your household, you know, all of the things that you do around the house or outside of the house, all those sorts of things. I know that you are all happily married and would never do anything of the sort, but perhaps you can imagine the type of couple that would have that sort of argument, trying to argue your case, make your point, defend yourself. Can you remember a time in such a case like that or in some other completely different realm where you defended yourself with passion? Maybe there is some sort of legal issue. Maybe it was some sort of relational issue. Maybe it was even with God in mind, thinking of something that was going on in your life and you defended yourself with that sort of passion that you don't pull up very often in your life. Because there are few things we defend more passionately than our own reputations. And we see that incredibly well illustrated in the book of Job. Much of Job's language, much of his passages in the book are him defending himself. Defending his own righteousness, defending his innocence. And certainly we see that in the passage we're going to look at this morning. So far in the book of Job, we have seen the wager at the beginning. I say wager, that's kind of what it's called, maybe, maybe not a great word, but uh, the, the agreement between God and Satan that Satan would come and test Job or afflict Job. 
Uh, the first time Satan comes, he, he takes everything he has as well as his family. Second time Satan comes, he even takes Job's health. Job seems to, in the first couple of chapters, remain faithful even in the midst of that pain. Uh, he still seems faithful throughout the rest of the book, just very upset and demanding an answer. Job's friends come at the end of chapter 2. They offer consolation. They sympathize with Job, sitting with him quietly for seven days and seven nights, showing what a friend ought to be in a time of trial. And then they show what a friend ought not to be throughout much of the rest of the book, as we looked at last week, and when Job's friends, Eliphaz in particular, go to the point of making stuff up about Job because Job had to do something wrong in their mind. Job had to do something wrong in order for God to allow those things that happened to Job to happen. It must be divine retribution. And Job argues against his friends at every turn, once again asserting over and over again his own righteousness, his own innocence, doing so seemingly with more passion with each repetition. He picks up the ante a little bit, defending himself, making his case, asserting his innocence. And Job essentially rests his case in the passage we read today. Actually, in three chapters, Job 29, 30, and 31, we have Job's last speech, his last statement. Again, his final statement, if you will, his closing words. If our main goal is to defend ourselves, we're wrong even when we're right. And perhaps this is the issue with Job himself throughout the book. We'll see, see a mixture of, of Job speaking truth, but also seeming to go just a little bit too far in the things that he has to say about God, or maybe a lot too far, depending upon your perspective. But Job's main goal seems to be in this passage and in much of the book, until we get to the end, to defend himself so passionately that everything else falls secondary. And if our main goal is to defend ourselves, we're wrong even when we're right. Again, the passages this morning are Job 30, 19 through 23, and 31, 35 through 37. But real quick, just to give you a little context into this chunk of Scripture, this final, Job's final defense. In Job 29, Job reflects on his former glory. He reflects on how good things used to be, about how blessed he was, about how esteemed he was, about all of the good things that he had and all the good things that he had going In Job chapter 30, of which we'll read a portion here in a moment, Job reflects over the loss of all of those good things. But not only that, the humiliation that came with it. Him being esteemed, seen as the greatest man in the East, as it says in the first couple of chapters, but now being humiliated to the point where everyone is assuming that he must be some sort of sinful, uh, some sort of sinful rebel who is always going against God, completely depraved, because that's why he must be being punished in their minds. And then in Job 31, Job demands an answer from God, wanting to know once and for all why this is happening. Not only why this is happening, but wanting to point out once again for God to point out that he is innocent, that he is righteous. At the end of chapter 31, Job has said everything he has to say for the final time, and he waits on an answer from the Lord which he gets. Job chapter 30, verses 19 through 23 is the first passage we are going to read. Again, this is Job speaking. God has cast me into the mire, 
and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind, you make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm, for I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. The good times are gone. Job points that out very painfully in chapter 30. Again, he was considered the greatest man of the East, and now he is a laughingstock amongst his peers, or, or maybe not even laughingstock, maybe seen as a man to be pitied for the way that he is being treated. And they would say, all of Job's onlookers, rightfully so because of all of the things he had done wrong. In verse 19, Job says, I have become like dust and ashes. In the Old Testament, New Testament as well, biblically speaking, that is a symbol for death, dust, and ashes. Job is basically saying, I might as well be dead, this is so bad. Maybe even saying, it would be better to be dead, this is so bad. Verse 31, we didn't read that one, but at the end of the chapter, Job says, my leer has turned to mourning and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. In other words, the areas in which I used to have joy, I now have pain. Everything that used to bring me and my family happiness now brings us sorrow. Everything is upside down. There is no hope to be found. There is no comfort to be found. There is certainly no happiness to be found. And as Job goes on, we see who he blames. It is God that he blames. And here's the difficult thing about Job. It would be easy to join in with his friends and ridicule Job for the way that he responds. It would be easy to say, Job, buddy, you're going too far, and and he is a little bit, but it would be easy to say that you are totally wrong, Job, and everything that you're saying, everything that you're saying is false, and so you need, you are being punished, or you deserve this, or you might as well realize that you're not as righteous as you think. But in a lot of ways, Job isn't wrong when he says that God has cast him into the mire. God actually says this at the end of the book of Job. We'll get there in a couple of weeks, but just to give you a little bit of a preview, in Job 42.8, God is speaking to Job's friends, telling them that they spoke of him wrongly, but he says these words at the end of verse 8 and 42, speaking to Job's friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Even God says that Job has spoken correctly of God in some ways. God is the one whom allowed Satan to afflict Job. He is the one in control. He is responsible in that sense and allowing it to happen. Job is not incorrect. He is not wrong in making that statement. But again, he takes another step, maybe going a little bit too far. He argues that God is not even responsive. He says, I cry to you and you do not answer. This is no overstatement on Job's part. He's not trying to exaggerate. Read the rest of the book up to this point. Cry out is a pretty adequate term for what Job has been doing in these very chapters. Asking God for an answer. And again, he's not wrong. Job has lifted up these requests, trying to make sense of what is happening, looking for an answer. All he has gotten is a bunch of foolishness from his friends, and God has yet to respond to Job's inquiry for justice. 
yet he takes it again that step further and seems to, doesn't, he doesn't seem to, he actually does argue that God is uncaring and even cruel. He uses that word in the passage that we read. I'm sure you saw it. He says to God, you persecute me. Now that's strong enough in the English, but in the Hebrew it's even worse, and let me tell you why. In the Hebrew, the word for persecute there would be satam with an M at the end. M is in mother. But the wordplay is present. A wordplay meaning that it's almost exactly, in the Hebrew, it looks exactly almost like the word for Satan, satan. And it's as if Job is trying to show anyone who is listening or anyone who is reading that it is God who is coming against him. That it is God who has stepped into the role as Job's adversary, as Job's accuser, which is what the word Satan meant in Hebrew. Job expresses zero faith in God's goodness by assuming that God is against him, that God does not hear him, that God stands there while Job begs for help and does nothing. That God is even out to destroy him. In the last scripture that we read there in verse 30, Job says, I know that you will bring me to death. I know that my end game, that your end game, God, is just to kill me and be done with me. This is the faith that Job has in God, at the, or that Job, yeah, that Job has in God at the moment. Again, in many ways, Job is not wrong. God is responsible. God has yet to respond to Job's inquiries. But in some ways, Job takes one step too far, saying that God is cruel, that God himself is actively, for some reason, persecuting Job, that God is opposing Job, that God is accusing Job. God does the opposite for Job. The only thing that God has said about Job so far is that he is a righteous man. God is always responsible, but he is never to blame. Let me flesh that out a little bit. God is always responsible. Anything that happens, happens on God's watch. There is nothing that happens in this universe that God is not overseeing in some capacity. If we don't agree with that point, then we assume that there are things in this universe that are out of God's control. And I'm not comfortable with that. Not only am I not comfortable with that, Scripture is not comfortable with that. God is in control of everything, even the forces of evil at work in the world. If something happens, it happens under God's watch. He is responsible, but he is never to blame. Now, I know those seem like contradictory terms, and I guess at first glance they do. But I hope you see the truth behind them that they are not. That while God might be over everything, God is not the one causing those things. God is not the one causing or wishing evil upon the world. God himself does not actively persecute believers. He might allow persecution to take place, but he is not the one working against us. For that would be God working against himself. It would be God accusing us of sin and then having Jesus come to bear that sin. God hurting his own flesh. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work that way in Scripture. doesn't work that way in reality. God is responsible, but he is not to blame. And Job is correct in saying that he is responsible for what is happening, but he takes it too far when he blames God for everything. 
when he acts as if God is somehow at fault, that God is cold and unloving and uncaring. This is not the case. But Job continues to argue his point. And in chapter 31, we see a remarkable piece of self-defense in what Job does. What he essentially does in chapter 31 is he lists all of the reasons why he is innocent, all of the things that he has not done, including he has not looked upon a virgin in an impure manner, he has not been deceitful, he has not turned aside from the law, he has not been enticed toward another woman, he has not mistreated his servants, he has not withheld anything from the poor, he has not refused to share with or mistreated the orphan, he has not ignored those in need of clothing, he has not made gold his trust, putting his confidence in material things, he has not worshipped the creation, the moon, or the earth, he has not rejoiced over the ruin of an it. He has not allowed the traveler to go hungry. He has not concealed the truth. And at the end of chapter 31, he even points out that he has not mistreated the land that God has given him to be a steward of. And right before that passage about the land in Job chapter 31, verses 35 to 37, Job presents perhaps the most bold statement of all of the things that he has to say. Verse 35 in chapter 31. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Job stops bordering on arrogance and steps right into it in this passage. He wishes curses upon himself if he is lying, pointing out again all of the reasons why he is innocent. This is how strongly he believes in and desires to defend his own innocence. You read some of the things that he says in 31, and I would encourage you to read it on your own time, but they're very, very bold. Job, in talking about keeping his heart from falling toward being enticed by another woman, basically says that if I was ever enticed by another woman, may my wife be given to another man. And he says it in more graphic detail than that. Wishing curses upon himself. Being bold in his self-defense. And at this point, Job is not even asking for his wealth, his health, or his family to be given back. No, here at the end of the book, the only thing he seeks is exoneration. is to be proclaimed innocent by the one true judge. To let the whole world know that he has done nothing wrong, that he has done nothing to deserve the affliction that he has received. He says, oh, that God would hear me. And even calls God his adversary in this passage. Oh, that I would have the indictment by my adversary. Indictment, that sounds like a word of wrongdoing, but what it essentially is, is it's like a legal brief. And he is wishing that God would would speak the truth because Job is so sure of his own innocence that if he knows that God opens his mouth and speaks truth, that Job will be proclaimed innocent. And what he is basically saying is, I wish that God would speak that or would give that to me written down. I would wear it. I would carry it with me. I would wear it like a crown and put it on my shoulder so that everyone who sees me would know that I am innocent, that I would no longer be the laughingstock, That I would no longer be surrounded by friends who think that I somehow deserve this. But rather I would be treated like a prince because I would finally be exonerated. 
Job is so sure of his own innocence that he is willing to stand at the foot of the Almighty and say those bold words, here is my signature, God. I have signed this truth statement. I have signed it with my own name. And I await your response. May the Almighty answer me. None of us would have the guts to do that. At least I wouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't put that on you. But imagine standing in that position of judgment and essentially shaking your face, your fist toward heaven and saying, I know I'm innocent. I know I haven't done anything wrong. I don't understand why this is happening. Everybody around me thinks that I deserve it, but I know better. God, why have you been so silent? Why have you been so quiet? Why are you becoming my adversary? Why are you working against me? Why do you just sit there while you put me through this cruel and unusual punishment? I have made my case. I know that I am right. Answer me. Job gets God's answer. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. We'll look next week at the answer that he gets through another man that appears suddenly, but he gets an answer directly from God as well, not the one he was looking for. It's a redress of grievances that Job offers. We use that in governmental terms to say the right to petition The right to go to the powers that be and say, this is wrong, it needs to change. Job is doing that to God. And maybe here is the heart of the mistake that Job makes. Job is more confident in his own righteousness than he is in God's. And he is more passionate about defending his own innocence than he is the holiness of God. This shows us the futility of self-defense. Job's arguments, while technically true, mostly, change absolutely nothing about his case. No matter how much passion, no matter how great the logic, no matter how many times he repeats his own self-defense, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't do anyone any good, including Job himself. It doesn't make the friends' lives better. It doesn't make Job's lives better. It doesn't make God look better. No one is the better after Job defends himself. No matter what happens from this point forward, everyone will still think that Job is guilty. Everyone that thought he was guilty will still think that he's guilty and deserves punishment, even if he is fully restored. Do you guys remember several years ago? I don't remember exactly how long. It's been quite a few now. But remember there was a, a scandal involving the University of Duke and their lacrosse team. Anybody remember that? There was a lot of things said about some things that they did to a woman one night. It was a terrible, terrible incident. A lot of terrible things happened. But they basically, she basically claimed that they assaulted her. And once the media got a hold of it, they ran wild with it. It went in magazines. People wrote articles about the the terrible culture at Duke, and it's a bunch of rich white kids that are going to take advantage of this minority girl. And it's it's, 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 it's this thing that, that made sense to the world because we see it happen in reality so often that everybody bought it hook, line, and sinker. And a university like Duke, again, that's so, so rich and so successful, is a group of people that people love to hate. It's the reason why nobody likes, or a lot of people around the country don't like the Dallas Cowboys, even though they haven't been that successful as of late. 
It's the reason why in the 90s people hated the New York Yankees because they were the epitome of what everybody wanted to be in reality. They achieved so much and everybody was tired of them being successful that they were happy to see them fall. And it was the same with Duke. In, in, in basketball especially, they're known as this powerhouse and they never do anything wrong. And again, it's a bunch of trust fund kids coming from rich families. It's the kind of people that society likes to root against. And everybody bought the story and everybody believed it. I was one of them. Only to find out, after a little bit of digging, that the girl made up the story. That there were some things done terribly wrong, but she was not assaulted. There was essentially no crime committed. Everyone on the team was found innocent, but by that time, the entire world believed they were guilty. And no matter how much these guys defend themselves, when most people hear about that lacrosse scandal, they're still going to remember the terrible things that were said about the team, the indictments that were made. No matter how many times there are articles written or television programs uh, made that show their innocence, there are still going to be some people to believe they are guilty. And the same is true with all of us. For whatever reason, there is something within us as humanity, part of our fallen sin nature, that likes to see other people fail. That likes to revel when others grovel what Eugene Peterson says in the message version of the Bible in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love doesn't revel when others grovel, but humans do. We enjoy watching the mighty fall because it makes us feel better about ourselves. If someone thinks ill of you, you could defend yourself in absolutely every logical manner. You could be cleared by a court of law. You could have 500 witnesses. And if that person wanted to think you were guilty, guess what? In your mind, in their mind, you're guilty. It doesn't matter what happens. You're guilty. You can't defend your way out of that. Once the accusation is made, it will stick no matter how hard and passionate you work against it. The same is true with Job. No matter how much he argues, his friends are still going to think it's his fault. The people around him that are scoffing and thinking that he deserves it, they're still going to think he deserves it, even if God does exonerate him. His self-defense does him no good. Besides, while Job might be righteous, in the sense that any time he had made a mistake, he had made himself right with God, it would not be in keeping with the entire testimony of Scripture to assume that Job is perfect, for there is no one perfect except Jesus Christ. Scripture says that repeatedly. Job is not God. He is not able to hold God in question. And it comes to the main point. There is no point in defending ourselves to a perfect God especially when he is willing to defend us. This is the beauty of our perspective. We look back on Job. Job is not towards the end of our Bible. It's right in the middle of it. And toward the ends of the Bible, we have another story. We have a story of a man named Jesus who was the manifestation of God, the very presence of God on this planet that came to redeem us, to reconcile us, to make us right, to defend us against what we absolutely deserve. 
And even though Satan and people all around the world still point and accuse and say you're wrong, you deserve this, you're evil, so on and so forth, we now have a God through Jesus Christ who steps in, defends us, and no matter what arrows might come our direction, no matter what we technically deserve because of our own behavior, nothing sticks to us anymore because we are behind the cross of Jesus Christ that everything else stuck to. All of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our pain, whether we thought we deserved it or not. On this side of the cross of Jesus Christ, there is absolutely no point in defending yourself. Because you can't defend yourself better than Jesus can. He defends you a whole heck of a lot better than you could ever defend yourself. You could come up with all the reasons, like Job, and you've done it. I know I have. That when I feel like I'm being accused of something, my immediate response, at least in my head and sometimes out loud if I'm being honest, is to say, oh yeah, well, I know the scriptures really well. Or I give a lot of my time to other people and I serve in this way. Or, or I have this talent or this ability. Or I've, I've been self-sacrificial and loving to my family in this way and to other people in this way. I'm a good person. I don't deserve that same thing that those other people do. When in reality, I absolutely do. And no matter how much I defend myself, the only thing it serves to do is bore everyone else and waste my own breath. Because God has argued my defense. And it has nothing to do with me. And everything to do with him. One lesson we can learn from the book of Job is that when we try so hard to defend ourselves, we can be wrong even when we're right. Job was right in a lot of ways. He was wrong in trying to be above God and act as if God was doing something wrong and being cruel. He couldn't see everything, not yet anyway. And he was certainly wrong in spending all his energy in defending himself. It was a useless endeavor. God is our defense. Save your words to be about God to other people, not to defend yourself. It is a worthless, futile endeavor. God will defend you through Jesus Christ. And that's all the defense I need. This morning, during our time of invitation, I invite you into a conversation with God. I invite you to reflect on your own desire to argue your innocence, to why you're a good person, to why you deserve things that maybe other people don't, to submit to the fact that that is not the case, and that all good things come from God, and the only reason why you have defense is because you have God's defense. Give him praise, give him honor, and give him glory during this time of invitation. Thank you, thank him, your heavenly father, for defending you when you are indefensible. And if you need to pray about this or anything else, I'm here to do that with you this morning. During our time of invitation, you can find me after the service as well. Let's stand together. Bill and Lynn are going to lead us in a song of invitation, and you move in whatever way God is calling. Dear Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for today. We thank you for being here with us 
speaking to us through your Holy Spirit. God, we come before you and we repent of our desire to be seen as innocent and just when we know that we are not. And God, we come to you with a thankful heart for defending us so that we don't have to waste our energy defending ourselves. God, may you help us be more concerned with your righteousness than our own. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.